0: This is Teachers Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Friday Break with John Gibbs. It's the 28th of October. And this week, my guest is Professor Stephen Gorard, who is the Professor of Education and Public Policy at Durham University. In a fascinating discussion, I ask him, why isn't every school a good school?
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in at ttradio.org. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
1: And we're back. And if you've been following my programme over the last few weeks, you'll know that what I'm basically doing is looking at my career and wondering what schools were for. What have I been doing all these years? And in the spirit of the Emperor's New Clothes, I want to ask some questions which seem naive but I think are very very important to get to the heart of something we may be we shouldn't accept why isn't every school a good school why isn't your local school the obvious choice for your children I want to ask that question often wondered why schools fluctuate in quality why does Ofsted turn a school from outstanding to requiring improvement seemingly within a few years what is it about our schools that makes them so difficult to manage so changeable in quality and so different for the experience of children. And above all, why doesn't every child have an equal education? Equity is the heart of this. It's a matter of justice. My guest in a fascinating interview that I conducted earlier this week, Professor Stephen Gorard, a writer of multiple books and advisor to governments, Professor of Education and Public Policy at Durham University, Director of Durham University Evidence Centre for Education This is a recorded interview but if you wish to contribute during the show please message me with questions or comments. I will be live behind the scenes as it were to answer your questions. Stephen welcome. Good afternoon. Why is it not the case and I could I could guess all sorts of answers but why is it not the case that every school is not as good as every other school? It's said to be one of the most stressful things that parents do other than sort of bereavement and selling their house is deciding what secondary school their children go to. Why do we agonise so much about this decision, which is seen as life changing? If you can't get your kid into the right school,
2: okay. So, my, I'm going to give you a question back. How do we know that? How do we know that they're not? What evidence do we have? That they're not. I mean, I know there is. Um, there's local perspectives. You know, there's that kind of bus stop behaviour. There's, you know, neighbourhood chat about the prestige or the, the the attractiveness of particular schools, and there is. There's attainment data. Now, we know that raw attainment data tells us about the intakes to the schools, but not necessarily more than that. We'll come back to that later. Yes. Um, there's also things, so in England, there's Progress 8, that has been contextualised, value-added, value-added, which is trying to look at the progress that young people and children make in school. But the problem with that is it is by definition 50% determined by the raw attainment data which we've already said is not a good indicator of how good a school is, only of how high attaining other students who go to it, which is not the same thing. Um, It's also unreliable. So if you look at schools that have, say, higher or above average Progress 8 scores over a number of years, it'll go up and down. I once did a thing, I mean, it was some time ago now with the previous value added over... I, I looked at 2014 and the previous six years I didn't find a single school that was consistently positive or negative in terms of its value-added scores. So the problem with that is if you can't predict the value-added scores six years ahead, then when you as a parent or a family, say, are picking a secondary school for a child aged 10 or 11, Mm. then using the current indicators for what they're worth, and they're worth, I think, very little, Mm. will tell you nothing. I mean, really nothing about what it would be like. So the the raw scores are much more stable. You know, the leafy suburban schools tend to get higher attainment of the inner city, you know, comprehensives, and they will do so probably five
1: years hence. So if the raw scores really only tell you the attainment level of the kind of students who go to the school and the value-added scores aren't very reliable, how do parents judge a good school? And why are schools so different?
2: I've jotted down a few things that I will come to to explain why there are apparent differences. But I just want to be... Just want to make everybody listening think again about what they think they know about how good schools are. So for example, it's it's quite common policy talk for people to say, oh well, schools in the southeast are better than schools in the northeast, because the schools in the northeast get you know worse results, or maybe the northwest or the west Midlands. But they also have much higher levels of poverty mm. um, and, and other issues, including special educational needs. So the question is not are they getting higher scores? But are they getting higher scores than you would expect, given the intakes that they have? So just to run through your list, the list of things that occurred to me when you first asked the question, I'm sure there's more. First of all, there remains unequal resourcing, and it was shocking this week to see the IFS report on how, um, as a completely opposite to leveling up, the most disadvantaged schools are getting the smallest increase in funding, and the largest increasing is go- increase in funding under the school formula is going to the most advantaged schools. So it is absurd that we have the situation that you know like richer schools will be getting relatively richer. We're not in the same situation as China or the US, where schools are paid for by local taxation, which is totally absurd because it means in rich areas where there's more tax, the schools get more money and in poor areas, they get less money and that just yep. seems to be the antithesis of what it should be
1: or in areas in america i taught in america for a little while and if the if the population around the school aged and had fewer children they invariably voted for lower taxes so mm. if the school was rapidly impoverished and if there was lots of children in the local in, in, the, in yep. the catchment then they voted for higher taxes
2: so the national system is a good system yes. where the stuff that, and we do have a funding formula and it, it's not bad and um despite what i just said i mean it's just it's been tweaked in the wrong direction. We also have the pupil premium funding, which goes to which follows children who have, um, who, you know, are known to be eligible for free school meals or other disadvantage, and the schools get that, and that's been a good thing. And we might come back to discussing that in a little while. But the second thing, I suppose, is is the geography on, and the distribution of disadvantage across the country. So obviously the northeast has much more long term disadvantage. Southeast. so you'd expect results to be lower there because we know that on average, and it is only on average, more disadvantaged students have lower average attainment. But that's not all there is to geography. There's also you know coastal areas, which, which is strange because of course their catchment areas are be sliced off, unlike places inland. You know, and it, it does that kind of geography does produce um, strange phenomena. Then you've got the issue of teachers you know although teachers are you know well-meaning and enthusiastic it is statistically clear that over time teachers gravitate towards the less disadvantaged schools and you know incentives and so that have to have to have to be created to try and get if like well-qualified teachers experienced teachers to remain in or move to areas of high disadvantage
1: i can recall how that happened in crawley newtown with the with the three big comprehensives the town started with and there were more since But they should have been identical but as time yeah. went by teachers left certain schools because they, be- they were in the parts of town with lower incomes diff- more difficult housing estates and so on and they they got out of there because it was hard to teach there uh, can i just go yeah. back to one thing you said mm. uh, i would have thought I mean I, if we put aside people premium for a minute because people, I can see what that's trying to do whether it's effective or not but I would have thought if you're going to tweak finances at all the easiest thing in the world to say well if there are schools in areas which are difficult to teach in give them more money mm-hmm. so why would it why would, we, why would it be tweaked in the wrong direction well
2: I, I don't know uh, cynics might say um, you know as always a lot of uh, things and like opportunity areas and so on Tend to be heavily correlated with places where MPs who are part of the current government are more likely to be to represent. So it could be that that uh, you know the government is giving money to its own. I'm not saying that is the case, but that is one pattern that has been observed with um, previous funding allocations. Mm. But I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, it's possible that, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you know, the poor areas are getting more people premium, so we need to compensate for it. But no, I mean, I, we can only speculate as to why such a strange. I mean, if it had been flat across the board, you might think, okay, well, that's that's what they've done, that's okay. Or if it was tilted somewhat towards more disadvantaged areas, as the levelling up agenda, the rhetorical agenda might have suggested. But to go the inverse, as they have apparently done, just looks odd
1: does not it well, odd it, it, it would seem it, yeah. the, the simplest thing if you would stopped any person in the street and said look there's a, there are three schools in this area one is really struggling uh poor exam results whatever way we want to measure those things uh they'd say give it more money
2: i mean again i'm speculating here yeah, but that, you know in the 1980s 1990s there was a kind of market theory of schooling that you should yes. reward successful schools and uh hope that uh, the poorer schools either improved to get the reward or closed or whatever, um, a kind of survival of the fittest. Um, now, I don't, I don't think anybody's still advocating all of that, but there may be an element of that underlying decision.
1: Any teacher who's been teaching over the last few decades, certainly since the 1980s and 90s, will have seen the way schools went from much more cooperative relationships with each other, with special advisors under local authority control, being set against each other in a much more market liberal sense as competitors and the way in which funding for schools shifted to funding successful schools as uh, as specialist schools or as trusts with upfront money well they got
2: some i mean the original specialist schools and then the academies yes the first half minute was meant to be 50 or whatever they got a flat sum of money and recurrent extra money for every pupil for every year so um, that was good but can we come on to that later that, just course, to finish yeah. my okay. the other issue then is intakes to schools so the, the reason why there appears to be a difference in the um, for the quality or the performance of schools is that you have different intakes so um, you know, so if, you know if, if a school has a lot of children with learning challenges special needs and disabilities you would expect on average their performance to be slightly worse and it is interesting how many Selective and even non-selective faith schools and so on take very few, or in some Ghana school cases, none, no children with special needs or disability other than the invisible ones like dyslexia, the, um, the you know, the so-called middle class SEM. That's, that's linked to area of residence. You know, we all know a little bit. I'm not, I'm a bit cynical about the estate agents premium, but there is obviously evidence that if you draw a ring around a set of houses and you say, well, that, that's the intake to the school. The school will represent
3: mm-hmm.
2: the quality and the cost of the housing. And that might exacerbate if the school becomes more desirable. You might get a premium of 10 20,000 to be within the catchment area or the feeder school system of that desire- so, supposedly desirable school. And then the allocation process. But I think the biggest one, and this really touches on um, your, your central question is the diversity of schooling. Once for a lecture, I tried to work out for students how many different types, in this case, of secondary school there were. So it was looking at obviously age ranges, and you've got some which are middle school deemed secondary, and you've got some which are 11 to 16, and there's 13 to 18s, and 11 to 18s, and so on. And then you've got the voluntary you know, the, the, um, you know voluntary controls and various versions of that, because you, know, you might have Jewish, Catholic... CME, Muslim, Hindu schools, and so on. Then you've got specialist schools, foundation schools, um, you know, university training, UTCs, university training colleges, um, teaching colleges. Uh, I, I mean, I've lost track, but I got to, um, over a hundred and I gave up. And I realized I wasn't going to stop looking at all the, you know, single sex, not single sex, um, the different times of speciality. So in a national system that each education secretary is meant to be overseeing, presumably to ensure that everybody in the country gets an equivalent standard of education, is overseeing a system of so much diversity of schooling. And again, I've heard people argue that there are kind of market reasons for that. But apart from the um, free schools, which had a sort of semi-bottom-up creation, all of these types have been imposed. They've either hit long-term historical. Well, they've been imposed on the system by education secretaries who come in and say, "I've got a great idea for a new type of school, but not for everybody." We we know we know that academies, stroke foundation schools, stroke specialist schools, whatever it is this month, stroke grammar schools are better than the other schools, and we want to make this available to only a fraction of the total population. And I never understood it. How can you come in and be the education secretary for an entire country and say, I want to knowingly create schools which are better, but only for some people? I mean, the fact they're not better, the fact that actually there's, there's no obvious difference between them is beside the point. They think they're better, or at least they state they're better. So why are they doing it? And we end up with this really bizarre system um, when, surely, we, we should be, it should be possible to decide there is a model which is the best. And then let's have that for everybody so that where you live doesn't impact on what educational offer is available to you.
1: So it's almost as if governments invent a new form of school in order to be seen to, to be answering the problems of education without an overall long-term strategy or understanding about what schools generally should look like. Can I
2: can just say before, you know, um, listen, start thinking, oh my God, What that means X or Y. I'm not suggesting you can't have diversity within school, but you can have vertical structures, you can have socialization, people can have all sorts of friendship groups, just like with inclusion where special needs kids are going to schools with mainstream in mainstream schools, so they can have friendship patterns with um, children they wouldn't have met if they were just in special schools. If everybody's in one school, it doesn't mean that the special needs children can't take Tuesday afternoon out of the normal classes to get whatever uh, 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 particular attention is they need. It doesn't mean we can't break the cohorts up into groups, and some can have, you know, remedial reading classes or whatever is needed, and some can have, I don't know, even gifted and talented. So we'd have diversity of treatment, but they wouldn't be permanent. You're not permanent in a school or in a stream or a set, it's just for particular activities. Yeah. It's just like some pe- some people are in the first 11 in football and some people are in the third 11.
1: It would be like that. Yeah, so, th- so students would have a diversity of experience inside the school. Mm-hmm. and a good, a good school might well be able to accommodate all sorts of different avenues and paths through. Mm-hmm. But it's that, that, again, as I said before, the terror of the big decision at age 11 or 12, whenever it is in your area, of, of getting your kid into the secondary school, which is seen as terrifyingly deterministic of how successful you'll be later in life, or, or, I think or, or, or whatever you. Although fear. you
2: say it's terrifying, sorry to interrupt, but you yeah. say it's terrifying, but I think there'll actually be some resistance to taking it away. I think that people would squeal if you did what I would propose, which is that the government would work towards a situation where it doesn't matter which school you go to. It really doesn't matter, so you may as well go to the nearest one. Yeah, I, I think you'd find that um, some family, some parents, would think they'd lost some ability to steal an advantage which obviously is not the point of the education
1: system is it no no but yeah. no, absolutely i'll be sure that I did was that one way right is that i thinking that some brighton and some other educational areas experimented with a kind of lottery where you simply your name went into a hat and you were allocated a local school and it didn't last because it was given a lot of it was very very unpopular i'm not sure i remember that correctly
2: yeah, um it's been tried in many places. Initially, the first I ever heard of was in New Zealand. Um, so the issue was, um, should we allow families to choose a school? Is it just you get allocated a school? Hmm. Um, but in the same way as you can choose a GP Center, it doesn't seem unreasonable to allow families to express a preference for a place. And that's all well and good, except that, um, for the, some of the reasons you have mentioned and I've mentioned, you get to the situation where some schools are oversubscribed. So these, uh, you know, the rules for allocating places really only come into play if you've got more people wanting to come than you can cope with hmm. than your planned admission number or your planned expansion number. So in New Zealand and in Brighton and a few other places, what they did was to decide oversubscribed places through lotteries. That is to say, rather than you know, if you've got you know uh, twenty people extra fighting for you know three places,
3: right.
2: um, rather than trying to use some strange criteria to make a judgment about the worthiness of one or other of those people, it would be fairer to have a lottery. I mean, originally people were against it because you, there was no way to appeal against it. You know, if if someone sort of makes a decision based on criteria, you can go back, you can go to an appeal, and say in the end, you can go to a court and say. Well, you didn't use the criteria properly. Hmm. But as long as the lottery is fair, then you can't really appeal. Now, what, happened in each, right. what happened in each case, and most dramatically in New Zealand, is that the extent to which poor children were clustered into schools with other like them declined rapidly. You know? So that what, what I work on called segregation plummeted, because you know, in one year, I think it was 1990 to, 90 to ninety-one. Um, so that not a, and ethnic segregation also reduced. So the extent to which uh, children were going to school with others like them declined, so we had a more comprehensive system. But it was so unpopular with the parents largely, and therefore with the politicians who represented those parents, that in both cases um, it was taken away. In New Zealand within one year, in Brighton, I think it took a few years. because people don't like it, for the reasons I've just suggested. Yes, I, I agree. People talk about the struggle, the anxiety. You know, people in Kent talk about, oh, the difficulties of 11 plus and so on. But you try and take it away from them and they will squeal more than, than they, that they will now. I think a lottery is a good idea. I mean, it, they had in, in the U.S. when they were desegregating by race, they used busing. Yes, um, so basically, you were allocated a place, and in order to try and mix up the black and white students, as it was then, more mm. so the Latino, um, they would bus you to a place, and then you'd have a mixed school intake. And you can see what the idea was um, that after a number of years, I mean, it might have taken decades, but after some time, that would not be necessary. And I think the same is true of um, of the lotteries. The idea is you use that to mix the schools up, and then after a bit it shouldn't be necessary because that concentration of um not disadvantaged and disadvantaged or you know particular ethnic groups in particular schools disappears yeah so people are not making the choice on the basis of the intake i
1: can i can see why immediately a a parent might say whether it's true or not well uh, you know the local school is the good school and uh, it's across the road whereas the school you want to send me to is 25 minutes on a bus it's ridiculous. I want to send my kid to the local to that school, or just want to hang on to the uh, choice as a sort of almost an idea of principle of you know, political individuality. I, I can choose things because choice is always good. I can go into Sainsbury's and choose things.
2: Mm-hmm. Can I choose. I mean, that's that's true, and that you might get that. Um, in, in the model of choice or parental preference works best in big urban areas. It works best in London with the London Underground and all the buses and Crossrail and all the investment. In transport, so that somebody living in anywhere in London, apart from the complete outskirts, probably has six or seven schools within a reasonable travelling distance, and that's what you're choosing between. If you live in Cornwall, it might be if you don't go to the local school, the next nearest is 25 miles away. So mm-hmm. the, the model doesn't work so well in rural areas, and that again, is something I think that education sector has failed to account for. But the situation you're describing, which is that if You don't get your local school. You have to go to a further away one already happens. You know, and and if you think of the example of, think of the population density of a, of a city. I remember this. I noticed it particularly in York when I once lived there, but it's true of all cities at the outs on the outside of the city, the population density becomes lower. And of course, the, the rural areas just outside somewhere like York, the population density is very low. See, if you lived in somewhere like Fulford in South York, you could live 100 yards from the desirable Fulford School or whatever it is uh, in South York, but not be eligible for a place because it would go to somebody who was 10 miles away in the country because if you didn't give the places to the people in the country, they'd have nowhere to go. And for the person who lives you know, in the, in, in the city, there would an, be another school that would be, a mile or so away that they could go to instead, whereas the person in the country, if they didn't get a place there they couldn't. And that seems, uh, within the bizarre nature of what we've got, entirely reasonable. Yes. So people are already being denied places, uh, even without oversubscription to their nearest school, and- where you've got sudden change in the gradient of population density.
1: Yes, so... So the, in a, what you're almost saying there, what you are saying is, is that parental choice as the, cons, you know, the sort of savvy consumer who says, well, I'll weigh up the, weigh up the differences from all the local schools. And I'll choose the best one for my child. is a bit of a myth, really. It's going to be available to some people, some of the time somewhere. And, so, and other other people will never get that, or never get that choice because their parents won't want to make that choice. There are schools where some yeah. 30, 40 percent of the students' parents have expressed no preference. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll tend to come from more working class, and uh, and the middle class parents will be the savvy consumers who will use everything they can do to get their get their young people into schools that they want they perceive as better. So the question
2: is, does that matter? I would argue that in terms of the education they receive in a national system, it shouldn't, and it probably largely doesn't. But what it does do is affect the intakes of the school. It's one of the things that will help to create schools that have high levels of more disadvantaged pupils and high levels of not disadvantaged pupils. I think that's what we need to try and stop. Um, yeah, the idea that parents are semi-consuming, I think a lot of them do go through league tables. I mean, not a lot of them, but, but some do. But you know, I'm a professor, as you said, professor of education. I don't understand the intricacies of value added. I can't see how it works. In fact, I don't think it does work. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that most parents are able to look at progress eight measures you know, the DFE doesn't understand Progress 8 measures because they give them confidence intervals which are based on randomization. But nothing's been randomised. These are population figures. So the statisticians doing the Progress 8 for the Department of Education don't understand statistics. And in that situation, I'm not sure who it is who does understand and can use it to make um, a wise choice. I think it's actually a proxy. And this is reasonable, again. Imagine you've, you have a... A 10-year-old child, they're the oldest child in a small school of 100, 150 kids. And they're about to be sent to a school further away, which has got 3,000 kids in. They'll be the smallest and the youngest. And, you know, you'll have issues about, you know, are people taking drugs? Will they be bullied? And so on. So bus stop behavior is crucial. So it's the local reputation of the school. And, of course, that is correlated with the, you know, raw score attainment. So I'm, I'm just again being a little bit cynical, and this is not research evidence. But we, we, I have some interview data on this that the people who are making choice, so, so-called informed choices are really choosing who they want their child to go to school with. And I think a similar thing happens with choice of private schools. You're know, paying for them to go to a place. Yes, it may have a nicer swimming pool and larger rugby pitch. But what you're really paying for is to go with other people from families who can also afford to pay those exorbitant fees.
3: Mm-hmm. I think you
2: get a bit of that in the normal school choice. It's who would I like my kid to go to school with? And obviously yeah. people who are going to do well and go on to university is, is what we want. But they're also less likely, perhaps, I mean, this is in the thought of a parent, to bully my child, to knife them on the way to school or whatever. Yeah. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying that's what I think there might be going on.
1: So, so those things, yep. in a sense, are a kind of branding of the school. It's, it, it, it's in some way, yep. when, when schools have a bad reputation, one of the first things they'll do is change the logo, change the uniform.
2: The uniform, yeah. And, I mean, I think the whole thing about uniform, I, I suspect that in natural way of school uniform would have disappeared, you know, decades ago. I think it's only there in order to try and create that image of this is the nice school. This is like the kind of school you went to. I once wrote a paper about the reports of, of, of parents and how basically they're trying to choose a school based on what they think schools should be based on what they went to. They're not really looking for a school of today, they're looking for a school of twenty, thirty, forty years ago. And the uniforms pander to that completely.
1: Well they're are oddly conservative places, schools. They they are looking backwards towards an, an imagined past. Because I can remember being at school in the seventies and the head teacher announcing very proudly to the school that we were now sort of modern, we were a modern school, and therefore mm. the school uniform was going, we were all going to choose what we wore, like proper grown-up people, because that's what you do in life. Mm-hmm. And then in my career, I watched the school uniform sweep back across the country, ties and blazers. Yeah. And the I mean, there's
2: always been an argument that we, want students, we don't want them to compete on fashion to show off to each other and so on. Um, I think there's, there's, a, there's a valid argument there, but you could have, have draft regulations that would prevent that, that weren't necessarily uniform. But anyway, it's not primarily, it's just interesting to observe yeah. how and why people might be picking schools.
1: Because the underlying suggestion is that, that it's a brand. It's, uh, it's about emotion and gossip and local reputation. And not really, you asked me right at the beginning, what, what is a good school then? Mm. And I think, well, isn't any school good if, you're, if your children are happy there and have a nice circle of friends?
2: Yeah, We want them to develop well academically. So, I mean, the the government, a government administration, cross-administration, I mean, pushing the, the academic attainment issue now, again, for decades, and that's what people are meant to be choosing. But, I mean, looking at this year's results or last year's results in order to choose is slightly unrealistic because in any area, unless you've just moved in, everybody knows which is the desirable school. You don't really have to do a great deal of research. You know, it's 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 the gossip on the streets, on the doorsteps, at, at the schoolyard in the in a primary school. So you know that you know that school, Goodrich, or whatever, is the school you want to, you want to get your kid in. That's what everyone is trying to do. If you're in that um, if you're in that group, yeah. So I, I think this idea of you people using current characteristics and parameters to choose, I think is is not very realistic.
3: Mm.
2: Most choices that when you know we've talked to parents, most choices have been made years before. And it's only when people move into an area they got they generally got no idea. But just like you know, if you look at Ofsted inspections, you know their, their grades of good, outstanding, and so on. You know, we ran a model. You could predict the grade that um, schools got basically from their from their intake. You know, the, the single sex, the grammar school, the selective, the faith based schools, Those are the ones that got the good, the outstanding much more, and the ones that were getting the um, requires improvement. Or used to be worse in, in previous incarnations were the inner, inner city ones with high levels of disadvantage. And they don't seem to be able to see beyond that. And I think, I think unfortunately the parents have the same issue. So you don't really need anything else just to know. I mean, you could just look at how many children attend each school who have, who have been permanently on free school meal eligibility since they arrived in year one.
3: Yes, fascinating. And the
2: more that is, uh, the lower the average attainment of that school will be, the harder it will be for the staff. Probably the less experienced and qualified the staff will tend to be over time. And that's the school that needs help. That's the school that needs the extra money, the extra staff, and could really value having peers who go in who are more likely to be considering a university education and so on. Um, but what we've got as a system that encourages that kind of segregation of poverty.
1: Extraordinary. I, I, a couple of episodes ago, my m- guest was uh, Professor Lee Elliott Major, who yep. is a pro- professor of um, social mobility. And he's done he did some research, which one piece of it suggested a really quite terrifying idea that some 40 or so percent of students that go into school in, in the beginning of their school career with disadvantage, levels of disadvantage in education, lower reading levels or whatever, come out with those same differentials of disadvantage. And there was seven years of education or so. seems to have had not a great effect. If
2: students- it's a really hard thing to judge. I think I know the report you're talking about. Yeah. Because Lee is only recently a researcher. He used to be an executive in the Sutton Trust. That's right. Um, but it's really hard to judge it does the gap widen. I mean, it's hard enough to judge how big the gap is and whether it changes every year, but mm. to judge whether it changes over the, the life of a child is, is really quite hard because you're using different metrics, mm. different measurements of attainment and so on. Um, I mean, obviously, the Education Act in 1944, which set up the, sort of the full um, universal compulsory system, had one of its main int- intentions was to reduce the impact of home backgrounds. So schools should be working to reduce these gaps. But until recently, I'm not sure that's been a major effort. Mm. So what they do is, if they discover there are problems, they just try and have more of the same medicine. So they have a longer school day, or they have Saturday morning schools, or they have breakfast clubs, or summer schools in the summer holidays. So they're just basically saying... Whatever's happening, it's not working, so let's do more of it. Rather than specifically attacking the poverty gradient, um, for which the the evidence worldwide, OECD, US, everybody, is clear. If If you want to attack the poverty gradient, the first thing you do is reduce poverty segregation between schools, which would mean not having diversity and so on. All the things that each education secretary has made worse, you do the opposite because there's such a strong link between the segregation gap and the attainment gap. But if you, you could reduce segregation, you would improve the attainment gap. And then you can do stuff like the EEF promotes and so on. There are particular interventions, and that's what the pupil premium is for.
1: Before we get, um, but, I'd, yeah. I'd like to ask about the pupil premium, but what, we see, what you seem to be saying there is that the, the, it's self-fulfilling. So if, if there is a, a problem for student attainment is being segregated, so there, there is actually you're harming students' education, and a way yeah, of, a way of helping their education a, would be to have more seg- desegregation of schools socially. Yeah, I mean it's, it's a peer effect. I mean, and it could
2: be to do with aspirations, it could be models, you know, for a number of things, it's just, and and it's it's not going to solve the issue, but if you want to have um, no poverty attainment gap, then don't have poverty segregated or clustered in particular areas. I mean, there's not a like lot you can do. In the short term, in education, to, to make the difference in levels of poverty between Middlesbrough and working. And, and you obviously can't bus or fly children from working to Middlesbrough and vice versa. But even in an area like Middlesbrough that might have 40% of children on free school meals, there are schools with 60 or 65% of children on free school mm-hmm. meals. That's just not necessary. So, within the limits of what is actually feasible in one generation in education, we can do better than we do now. Yeah. yeah, and that's the first step. It's only yeah. the first step. Um, it, to, to, so when you, you know the DFE has introduced, um, you know, a catch-up work. So mm. uh, this is particularly for the transition from primary to secondary. So if a child leaves the primary school, and uh, particularly if their literacy is below what would be expected, they're going to find it really hard to access the wider curriculum of the secondary school. So maybe there's some kind of short, sharp intervention to be done to improve their literacy, to improve their access to the wider curriculum. And to some extent, their numeracy is the same. The DfE has quite wisely been giving schools funds for catch-up programs to try and address that very thing. So there are specific interventions to deal with the gap, as well as, more generally, just make schools the same and mix up the intakes more that everybody has role models and friendship groups across the board. I know it sounds idealistic, but the evidence does suggest that you know, where that's happened, both in this country, New Zealand, Finland, Norway, and so on, that it works.
1: Mm. And That's a good positive note to take a break and rejoin me in a few minutes with my guest, Professor Stephen Gorad.
4: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
4: The London Council has waded into the ongoing debate over free school meals by writing to the government calling for the eligibility threshold for secondary school children to be almost tripled. It is currently set at £7,400, but the letter from Southwark Council suggests a rise to £20,000 per year. The letter, quoted in the Evening Standard, calls on the Secretary of State for Education, Kit Malthouse, to act now to avert a calamitous hunger crisis. It urges the government to initiate universal free school meals for primary age pupils alongside the raise of income threshold for secondary pupils. The letter coincides with calls from Feed the Future, a coalition of campaigning organisations coordinated by the Food Foundation, for the government to extend free school meals to all children living in poverty in England. This appeal is also in line with National Food Strategy recommendations, which were released earlier this year. STV News reports on how teachers, parents and young people from across Scotland are to be asked for their views on plans to reform the country's education system. A consultation has been launched as part of an independent review of qualifications and assessments, which was first announced in 2021. The review is being led by Louise Hayward, emeritus Professor at Glasgow University, and it will provide advice for ministers to consider in March 2023. In Northern Ireland, two primary schools have created an animation focusing on children's mental health. The animation is called Our We Thoughts and Feelings and was created by pupils from Elm Grove and Christ the Redeemer primary schools. The animation was created through Our Generation, funded by an EU Peace 4 project and led by Action Mental Health. The objective of the Our Generation project is growing up better together and is currently being delivered on both sides of the border. Its core aim is to build positive relations and emotional resilience in communities impacted by the troubles. Earlier this month, we reported on the three dads walking, as they campaigned to get suicide prevention on the school curriculum in all four home nations. One of the three dads, Mike Palmer, who lost his daughter to suicide, has now won a Pride of Britain Special Recognition Award. Mike and the other two dads, Andy Airy and Tim Owen, have secured 127,000 signatures for their online petition, which should now prompt a debate in the House of Commons. The Pride of Britain Awards will be broadcast on ITV on the 27th of October. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio...
1: So, we're back with my guest, Professor Stephen Gorad, and we're discussing why every school isn't as good as every other school and we were just talking about before the break there whether the benefits of a more diverse school, a more balanced school with a mixture of abilities, a mixture of social backgrounds, and not creating the kind of sink schools and avoiding the sink schools and I was wondering whether the advantages work both ways if there are clear advantages for disadvantaged children being. A socially more mixed school. Are there advantages for the more able students as well?
2: Um, The effect for, for example, high attaining students would be relatively small. I mean, uh, high attainers will tend to do well wherever they go to school, and a lot of their progress takes place out of school, as is true for for many students. So the evidence is not strong, but the evidence is reasonably clear that they're not going to be damaged by there's no harm in them, right? Whereas the group that would be more likely to show um, greater improvement would be the disadvantaged and the lower attaining. Um, so a more... so if it's, if it's, a, it's a sort of no-cost-all-gain right. situation. I think we should go for it. Yes. it it's similar mm-hmm. to the grammar school issue where, you know, I think pe- people are hoodwinked by the fact that grammar schools get good raw score results, you know, which means they're good at picking at the age of 10 or 11 people who are going to get good raw score results at the age of 16. It's not necessarily evidence that the schools are better or producing better results. And uh, there is evidence that those students would have done the same, whichever kind of school they've gone to. Think- but what you're doing is stripping that 15, 20% most talented students out of the rest of the schools. So you're impoverishing impoverishing, impoverishing the secondary modern schools, even if they're not called secondary modern schools, mm-hmm. who've lost that group. So for no no obvious gain, you've damaged the rest of the schools, socially, morally, and in a number of ways.
1: It, it, there's an arc, so you're describing grammar schools there as really quite damaging, pernicious even, in effect. I mean, they're not, they're, they have diminished in number. There's
2: 162 now,
1: yes but what about uh, i've heard the same a similar arguments of private schools is there is there an argument that private schools are really quite damaging to any society where they become a uh, where they do this, do a similar effect i mean they, they pull people with, with if your parents have money you can send them to a private school you have no, less incentive therefore to create political pressure to improve schools generally because you're right jack aren't you
2: yeah, I think in general, I think that's true, and they would be the same as grammar schools in general. Um, I don't think it's true in some instances, so it depends on the exact system you're looking at. You know, there are countries. Um, I think Belgium is one where the majority of schools are private, but they don't really mean the same as they do private here.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: when the World Bank sets up schools in in the Punjab in India, where there's you know rural areas that don't have schools. These are private schools with pennies per day cost to the consumer. Um, And they actually help to equalise education. They're not sustainable in the long run. The state should step in and run these schools. But given that they're not, the fact that others move in and do it and set up private schools actually helps the school system. So I don't want to damn all of them with that. And in this country, you know, most this is that sounds like a contradiction most students who go to private schools go to big schools which are either converted proprietary residents or traditional kind of hmt hmc type schools and they're not all Eton but you know you know the kind mm. when people say private schools that's what you think mm. but the majority of actual private schools are not like that at all so some of them are as small as you know 10 people Following some kind of Baptist curriculum materials, which have flown in from America and they sit at the desk and just fill in these books. They don't have any sports facilities. They're probably just taking place in someone's dining room. Hmm. You know, the DFE said you've got more than how many people it is, more than four people in your homeschooling. It's a private school and they might charge 300 pounds a term or something. So let's not, you know, I, and I don't know what the effect of those is. Um, they don't sound good to me and I'd rather they. I'd rather probably rather they didn't exist. But the, the experience of going to that school and the, experience, the damage it may or may not do to the state system is very different from having, you know, luxurious, very expensive private schools, which are going to be like grammar schools, but in extreme form,
3: yeah.
2: because they're going to take out richer and possibly higher retaining average students from the mm-hmm. same sector. And do they- The only difference morally, I would say, is that... Um, Grammar schools and faith based schools and so on are in the state sector. They're funded by the taxpayer in a way that the private schools aren't. And I'm, I'd have to think how long and hard, if I were education minister, whether I was willing to stop people spending money on the education of their children. And if they don't say, we're, okay, we're paying tax, we're paying money for the state system, but we're going to forego that and we want to spend some extra money because we want our child to do well.
3: Mm.
2: Whatever damage it does, it's it's not intentional by the state sector in the way that grammar schools are. So yes, I think long-term, you'd hope to get rid of them. But if you, I think if you adopted the model we're talking about, where all the schools were as good as each other and so on, um, and you could actually work out that, I think the demand for private schools would, would reduce.
1: That's a bit like the argument for private medicine, that if the health service is good for everybody, then you don't worry about which hospital you go to, and you don't necessarily buy health insurance. Or spend money on a on a posh private hospital because the, the nhs is good enough
2: yeah i mean obviously it comes down to you know you you want your you want your dialysis or whatever and if you can get it three weeks earlier by paying money and you've got the money i suppose that's what
1: people are doing yes but if it but if the difference is six months earlier then you're then you're much more incentivized to, oh, yeah, to, yeah. to do that yeah pupil premium that, yeah. i mean pupil premium it, does it work my, my experience as a teacher in schools is that pupil premium was there's a pressure for schools to show once they get it to, to spend it so you, they look you look at your intake of your students, the number on free school meals, the number of students who didn't care, and so on, and you get an extra payment for that, and then you have to prove offset are, are going to turn up at some point in the not too distant future and say, how are you spending this money so you, there's an incentive for you to spend it on things that are provably spent
3: yeah as sending
1: you know, sending 20 student teachers off to a training thing is going to be more provably we're doing something than a breakfast club, which may be more, more difficult yeah. to set up and more hard to prove it works. I just you yeah, wanted- that,
2: that's that's know That also sounds like a feasible thing. Um, yeah. I mean, the DfE also requires the um, schools to account for the money and also to provide... Supporting evidence for interventions they've put on. So you look at most schools' websites now, when they talk about why they're using a particular approach to teaching reading or catch up or whatever it is, or or science, they'll say, as um, you know, as Liverpool University showed in 2019, this is the most effective way, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Now the problem with all of that is that I think that's them looking they're cherry-picking evidence to support the decisions that they've already made. And we've got some evidence from talking to schools that that's exactly what's happening. So, for example, there are thousands of schools in this country that have cited my research on things like Accelerated Reader or Fresh Start, Phonics, and so on, and say, as Durham University's study blah, 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 showed. Um, but I don't think any, very few, I think very few of those schools have actually chosen it because they read the evidence and thought, oh, my God, that's really impressive, let's do that. I think they heard from somebody else, ah, yes, this... Program this intervention seems to work, or we found it useful or successful, or whatever. So it's kind of friends and neighbours and colleagues and well wishers who suggest these things. Okay, um, so Good. 2010, the pupil premium was sort of introduced in law. It has been discussed for many years beforehand, and it was intended to have three three uh, effects. One was to um, a minor thing was to try and encourage um fam- schools to encourage families to register for you know, as eligible for people premium so mm-hmm. to register for free school meals and so on because there were suggestions about 50,000 families um, nationwide would have been eligible if they'd been registered but they hadn't and there's some evidence that it has that schools, because there's money going to schools if they're taking people who are registered they have an incentive to get people to register and so on and although parents are sometimes resistant There is some evidence that the number of missing cases has gone down. The second one, and this was the primary reason for it, was to reduce the segregation by poverty. Mm -hmm. So Sam Friedman and people like that who, when they first proposed it, they were thinking about segregation by poverty as the first step. And then the second part was reducing the attainment gap. Now, the segregation by poverty, in a sense, doesn't really need the school to do much, because all we're saying is if you take a disadvantaged child, and the the, um, the the laws were changed to allow you to use disadvantage as a priority criteria for allocating places. Mm. If you take this child, you will get money. So either you think, oh great, we'll get more money, or you'll think, in the past, maybe unconsciously, we didn't take these children because they might have been harder to teach. Mm. But now that's not a problem because now we will get the resources to deal with them properly.
3: Mm.
2: Let's say, and the amount of money the pupil premium was was. was uh, providing for schools was quite a lot. It was about a third of the total income for some schools. Mm-hmm. You know, We're talking about, about hundreds of thousands of pounds in many instances for individual schools. So it's not negligible. And the evidence suggests, from looking at long-term disadvantage, that the long-term disadvantaged pupils are now more evenly spread between schools than they were in 2011 when this first took place. And we've gone back to 2006 so if you look at the graph it was you know flat 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 2011 steep clip so yes there could be other reasons for that but we've looked to see what other reasons there are and we can't find anything in the in the economy or or changes in law or policy other than the fact that suddenly schools were getting this money so, what Friedman and others were saying is, we think there's an unconscious bias against disadvantaged pupils in the school allocation process. And it looks as though that hypothesis might have been confirmed. So, segregation, although it still exists, is now lower than it was. And poor, the very poor children are much better spread between schools in the areas that, that, that they live in. So, so that's so people,
1: good news. So, pupil premium, Pe- people, people premium has worked because it spreads more disadvantaged students out among more... Well,
2: students. it's worked in those first two objectives.
1: But, well, but, yeah, it's Yeah.
2: The third one is yeah. the attainment gap. We'll come to that in a minute. But in terms of those two, and of course, if it's true that spreading them out will actually help the attainment gap, then we'll have to wait and see. Because that's not going to happen as quickly. You can imagine, suddenly, 2011, you're making a decision. It's different to last year about your school places because this child has now got... £1,500 they'll bring with them that they wouldn't have had last year. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that could happen, the change could happen quite quickly. And as schools become more and more alert, that thing will drop. There's some evidence it's beginning to plateau out because whatever effect it had, you know, will have already taken place. Yes. But, so that, that's a benefit. And then if it was going to cash out into the attainment gap, well, how long would you have to wait? If you think about it 2011 people arriving in year one in their primary school where have they got to there they're just leaving year 11 in 2022 mm. so we're only just completing a full cohort of people through the what used to be called the compulsory school system up to age 16 under the pupil premium so you know i know people are always impatient to see results but if If something like reducing segregation had an impact then waiting to see how it was experienced in school, you'd have to wait at least as long as we've had waited so far Mm. before you'd expect to see much return on that. But in addition, in 2010, they set up the Educational Endowment Foundation. Well, which was tasked to both um, create evidence on how to use the people premium. um, New evidence, but also to synthesize existing evidence, to do what are called reviews of evidence. And they produced the EEF toolkit, teaching and learning toolkit mm. that schools are meant to look at to help them choose. So in 2011, I suspect many schools were bewildered. They've got this money. What on earth do we spend it on? As you said, it could be almost anything. Yeah. They were told you can't just buy a new gym, you know, and you can't just raise the salary of your staff. It's got to be something that would disproportionately benefit the disadvantaged group. But how do you do that? Now some schools may have done it well and some schools probably have no idea. But over time you would expect if the EEF was working well for there'd be to be more evidence that could be used as best bets. You know, they're promising projects, things you could use.
1: So one of the things you one of the things you might do is spend the money on teaching assistance?
2: Well you might, but the evidence suggests, you know, for example, Again, I'm not, I, I, we could have a longer session on one day about the quality of the research that EEF does and the way in which they synthesize it. But if you take them seriously, things like metacognition and enhanced feedback in the classroom. The nature of interaction in the classroom is, fundam- is, is, is the most promising and most cost-effective kind of approach. Yes, you can buy stuff in, you can buy more kit, but the the, the bang is less than some of these other things and the buck is much higher. But training staff, developing staff to use um, enhanced feedback,
1: so that, immediate feedback,
2: it, it well, can be much more effective.
1: That's, that's, that's a great way to bring this to an end in a way, because I did want to ask you about one last thing, which is, I know that you carried so out Just very-
2: before you ask me, can I make one go on, more point? Go on. Go, on, go on, There is some evidence, so at key stage one, the attainment gap, although there's a slight delay, has the same picture as the segregation. So for the, uh, for the children early in years, it's looking like the attainment gap is going down for these long term disadvantages. For all the other key stages, there was some evidence of a, of a downturn in 2011, but a contrary government policy came in where they tried to make key stage two and key stage four harder. There was worried about grade inflation, the curriculum changed. The GCSE famously, the, the grading system changed mm-hmm. from letters to reverse numbers and not matching at on. All. all of that seems to have made the system harder, so the results are lower, and that has increased the attainment gap again. So you've got two policies in tension. It looks to me as though the attainment gap was going down and then had a huge hit in 2014 to 2016, and now it's going down again. But it's yeah. still way above where it was I'm because make- of those...
1: Yeah. sounds a bit like our recent economic policies in it accelerator wow. and break at the same time yeah. <laughs> so the final the final as we come to an end this is an absolutely fascinating discussion one of the most interesting well everything's been interesting but a very interesting thing because i do another podcast on philosophy was a study you did where you took students aged eight and nine and they did discussions on philosophical um, ethical problems mm-hmm. so, le- led by themselves and yep. the your point about metacognition and the right kind of thinking or rather encouraging a kind of critical thinking and so on having you know being really quite a cheap thing for schools to do but worked rather well that's that seems Mm. that does seem fascinating
2: yeah it's kind of i mean that's more as with dialogic teaching isn't it um and it it requires the teachers to be restrained to not keep butting in and trying to control it yeah um you know, good teachers didn't do, but we did see some not so good examples. I think what's exciting about that is that you're, you're using up curriculum time for children to learn to, to, about and how to wield philosophical terms. I mean, mm. just, just terms for argumentation
3: mm.
2: and to learn to respect each other and to listen to different views and so on. But, you know, isn't there a danger it's going to affect the mass attainment and so on? And that's always the fear. And mm, mm. um, what this did was it appeared to um, lead to an increase in maths and literacy attainment, mm. even though it wasn't primarily about those things, it was about um, trying to get children to to think and you're not sure when it would please stage to literacy reward children who could build an argument. I, I'm not sure and we're not an expert in that area, mm. but I thought that was fascinating. so if you were thinking of improving literacy in maths. The, the effect size, the bang per buck, is not the highest you'll get. So you wouldn't pick it for that reason. But if you wanted to try and encourage children to think in that way and to behave with the respect that they showed to each other in those discussions, then as a bonus, it may cash out into improvements in literacy and numeracy as well.
1: Goodness, that is a, that's a wonderfully practical and useful uh, idea as well to end on. So, Stephen, thank you, thank you so much, my guest this week, uh, Professor Stephen Gorad, and that's been a as as interesting. We, I, there were so many things I wanted to ask you about. We got briefly into school uniforms, but select. Yeah. And select we know talked about value
2: added, and, and, and value added. added and so,
1: there's so much, and how uh, and Offsted, and so on. But uh, well, maybe maybe a discussion another day. Okay. Yeah. Well, th- once All again, right. ma- many thanks. Cheers. To, I think today's episode has helped me understand that sometimes the simplest questions, the ones that you'll hesitate to ask because they seem so naive, are actually the most important questions. Why isn't every school as good as every other school? Why do we agonise over where to send our children? Why are schools funded in such an irrational manner? And should we all be a little more honest, look into the nearest mirror and ask what we're really worried about when we choose schools for our children. Is it who they'll be sitting next to? Is it the reputation of the school, the smartness of the uniform, or what someone said about that school? Have we really sacrificed the most simple human idea that every child should be treated equally to class and to politics. Well, that brings this episode of Teachers Talk Radio nearly to an end. If you've enjoyed the discussion today with Professor Stephen Gorat, please join me in two weeks' time when I continue to explore what schools are for. This time looking into the future with Professor Rose Luckin of University College London, where I'll be exploring the possible use of artificial intelligence in schools of the future. These internet radio broadcasts have so far been going out live each week, and it has been possible for you to join in the show. But from now on, they're going to be podcast format, so although they'll be pre-recorded, and this week's episode has been pre-recorded, you can still comment live during the show by simply messaging me, I'll be there, behind the scenes, and message you back. If you have questions for a future show, I'll try to answer them next week. If, on the other hand, something occurs to you when you're listening to this as a podcast, please visit the Teachers Talk Radio site. And go to my page, John Gibbs, the host page, that is, and leave a comment or a question for the future. You do even want to suggest future episodes or suggest yourself as a guest. I'd be welcome to new ideas and new guests. If you think you can contribute... My quest to understand what schools are for. So I'll see you again in two weeks' time.
0: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.